0: is Mystery History Theater. This is segment five. Um, The whole of this has got to do with really uh, whatever happened with regard to apparent and not so apparent conspiracies surrounding the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. In part one, and all through this, I mean, I would contend uh, and this is directly opposed to what Stanton, uh Secretary of War, and some other high-placed politicians uh, wish to pursue, and that is they pinned it on the Confederacy and Jefferson Davis, that we completely move suspicion off everybody in high places, uh, in Lincoln's own party, in Lincoln's own cabinet, in Lincoln's own military, and that was to, that was to save their skin. Uh, in truth, the South had nothing to do with it. Davis would never do a thing like that. Um, and really, what would it gain the, the the South after the fact? Once the Confederacy was dissolved, I mean, um, such a mean-spirited and counterproductive act as assassinating the sitting president could only bring all kinds of uh, <laughs> bad things down on the South's head. And it did anyway. And that was another reason why Lincoln was to be removed, because he was much too conciliatory toward the South. Uh, there were many up in the North that wanted to punch, punish the South uh, until they were barely recognizable, hence the Reconstruction Acts. That's for another time. We're going to talk about Segment 4's focus on Lafayette C. Baker. I think we should go back and do that. That ties in another whole bunch of personages. And even if you know, don't know much about Baker, I think you would like to know, and also how this really just absolutely just breaks out in the tributaries all over the place. Lafayette C. Baker, who was the head of the National Detective Police, sort of an FBI uh, during uh, the Civil War. Baker was suspected of also being assassinated, a man who knew too much, but also made a lot of enemies. And for sure, Baker was not necessarily uh, Lily White, but um, it just goes to show you that, as we've talked about in other shows during other years, whenever you have something like a conspiracy to, to, to slay a high-profile person, such as a president, and also with certain um, mass shootings in the United States, and I know that's, I'm being general, but that's the it's going to stay, there are the perps who carry it out, and then there are the, the members of the cleanup crew who kill the perps. So in this situation, you might be looking at Lafayette C. Baker as being a victim of the cleanup crew and actually some of the, his own agents once under his command during the Civil War. We talked about the article from Civil War Times, August 1961, entitled, Did Stanton Plan Lincoln's Murder?, now, Baker accused Stanton of perhaps, maybe masterminding it is too much, but still in all, everything that happened with regard to trying to find, uh, Lincoln's killer and those who really were responsible was all going through Stanton. And Stanton, Stanton directed it where he wished, uh, not necessarily at those who, uh, should, uh, suffer trial and punishment because he was one of them. So uh, I'll read from Civil War Times. I did not do it the last time around. This is what was deciphered in Baker's codicil to his will. Uh, and, and this is just some vital my information on top. It says, The bound copies of Colburn's United Service magazine and Naval and Military Journal for the last half of 1864 in which was written the signature of L.C. Baker in invisible ink, contained two sets of coded cipher and pencil. The first was a substitution cipher of the so-called sliding variety. Each letter in the message was replaced by another letter with frequent changes or slides to make solution difficult. Each word was separated from from the next by a number. This was the message as Ray Neff and two cryptographers have deciphered it. And again, Neff is the one who did Decades of research into this whole situation and uh, co-authored the book, Dark Union, along with uh, Guttridge, Leonard Guttridge. All right. Page eight, 181. This is uh Baker's words. I am constantly being followed. They are professionals. I cannot fool them. And here it says the date is 2 Page 183. In New Rome, there walked three men, a Judas, a Brutus, and a spy. You heard that before in the last segment. Page 185 through 211, uh, each planned that he should be the king when Abraham should die. One trusted, not the other, but they went on for that day, waiting for that final moment when, with pistol in his hand, one of the sons of Brutus could sneak behind that cursed man and put a bullet in his brain and lay his clumsy corpse away. As the fallen man lay dying, Judas came and paid respects to one he hated, and when at last he saw him die, he said, Now the ages have him, and the nation now have I. But alas, fate would have it, Judas slowly fell from grace, and with him went Brutus down to their proper place. But less one uh, is left to wonder what has happened to the spy. I can safely tell you this, it is I sounds like the walrus eye all right uh, the other cipher beginning on page 106 used dots under letters on the printed page to form words this easily this easily decipherable message reads all right 106 it was on the 10th of April 65 when I first knew that the plan was in action page 107 Eckert uh, Thomas Thompson Eckert an aide to Stanton and there's a question mark but it was Eckert. Eckert without the K, as we said last segment as well. Eckert had made all the contacts, the deed to be done of the 14th. I did not know the identity of the assassin, but I know, but I knew most all else when I approached E.S. And here it says Edward Stanton in question marks, but of course it is. When I approached E.S. about it. Page 108. He at once acted surprised and disbelieving. Later he said, you are a party to it. Let us wait and see. Page 109. What comes of it, and then we will know better how to act in the the matter. I soon discovered what he meant that I was a party to it, when the following day I was shown a document that I knew to be a forgery, but a clever one, which made it appear that I had been in charge of a plot to kidnap the president, the vice president being the instigator, Andrew Johnson that would be. Then I became a party to that deed, even though I did not care to. In parentheses, this reads, this could also read, I have been in charge of a plot to kidnap the president and the vice president. Being the instigator, then, I became a party to that deed, even though uh, I did not care to. On the 13th, he discovered that the president had ordered that the legislature of Virginia be allowed to assemble to withdraw uh, that state's troops from action against the U.S. He fermented immediately into an insane tirade. And I think he means here uh, the he is Stanton. Uh, Then for the first time, I realized his mental disunity and his insane and fanatical hatred for the president. There are a few in the War Department that respect the president uh, or his strategy, but there are not so many who would countermand an order that the president had given. However, during that insane moment, he sent a telegram to General uh, Weitzel, countermanding the president's order of the 12th. Then he laughed in a most spine-chilling way, manner rather, and said, if he would to know who rescinded his order, we will let Lucifer tell him. Be off, Tom, and see to the arrangements. There can be no mistakes. This is the first, uh, that I knew that he was the one responsible. And I'll read that again. Uh, and, and th- this is taken from pages. It's not just one page, but I'm not going to continue to insert what pages they came from, because it's only disruptive. But again it said, uh, however, during that insane moment he sent a telegram to General Weitzel countermanding the President's order of the 12th, that he laughed in a most spine-chilling manner and said, if he would to know who rescinded his order, we will let Lucifer tell him. Be off, Tom, and see to the arrangements. There can be no mistakes. This is the first that I knew that he, meaning Stanton, was the one responsible for the assassination plot. Always before I thought that either he did not trust me, for he really trusted no one, or he was protecting someone, until it was to his benefit to expose them. But now I know the truth, and it frightens me to no end. I fear that somehow I may become the sacrificial goat. There were at least 11 members of Congress involved in the plot, no less than 12 Army officers, 3 naval officers, and at least 24 civilians, of which one was a governor of a loyal state. Five were bankers of great repute, three were nationally known newspaper men, and 11 were industrialists of great repute and wealth. There were probably more than I know uh, nothing of. The names of these known conspirators uh, is presented without comment or notation in volume one uh, of this series. Eighty-five thousand dollars was contributed by the named persons to pay for the deed. Only eight persons knew the details of the plot the identity of the others. I fear for my life, LCB. Well, he had good reason to because his life was taken by murder. I want to go back to an account that was written by uh, William Robert Bernard. I read it uh, during the first segment. He was one of the agents in the National Detective Police and, of course, served under Baker. I read some of his comments about uh, Lincoln, uh, and Bernard was less than uh, impressed with Lincoln's capabilities. Uh, Be that as it may, I want to read some remarks uh, that he had about Baker. There will be some others later that will not be as flattering. But apparently Bernard was a straight shooter, and this is his take. Uh, I'll just read a, one other paragraph b- before this all gets going, just to give you an idea of what was going on in Montreal during the Civil War. Information could be had from merely listening in Montreal, and rebel conspiracy was everywhere. There were rebel agents at all the hostleries, and they received as much valuable information as we did, much of it from Canadian newspapers. We had one major advantage. We could send a dispatch to Washington by train in a short time overnight, but the trip to Richmond was much slower, in most cases more than a month. Uh, There is one case I know of, however, in which a message was sent from Montreal to Richmond and an answer received in nine days. Colonel Baker finally found out how it was done. It went by train to Washington City and from there by express rider through southern Maryland to Richmond and then back on the same route. It must be assumed that more than one message went that way. And this gets to the crux of the matter. I would like at this point to present some appropriate comments about the late Lafayette C. Baker. I knew him well for the uh, for the war years, after Second Bull Run, and after the war until his death. I have always felt that he, like the much mourned Lincoln, was murdered by very powerful and most ambitious political foes. That Baker was murdered, there can be no doubt in my mind, that others of which we know not, were likewise disposed of, cannot be doubted. I would have died by an assassin's hand had I not in 1868 feigned suicide, changed my name, and gone elsewhere. To do this cost me my chance at happy married life with the only love of my life, the late Kate Scott. She never married, nor did I. She has long ago preceded me in death and went to her grave, thinking that I had drowned myself in the ocean off Cape May, New Jersey. Isn't that interesting? All right. Uh, he proceeds with uh, his remarks about Baker. Uh, he was a most remarkable man in many ways. He could be at times most ruthless. He believed without reservation that the means justified the end. Where have we heard that before? He had learned his detective abilities as a vigilante in California. He had a most retentive memory. The downfall of any agent, agent was and is the written word or maps. Colonel Baker had a system devised which eliminated the need for written words and maps. He memorized them. He could put uh, He could, but others couldn't. He would divide a map into four segments of equal size and then determine the important segments. He would then concentrate on the most important segments. He would draw middle lines diagonally across the segments and then refer everything to these lines and their point of intersection, referring to everything in kilometers and degrees of a compass. He would then remember the two sets of numbers. He could retain up to 50 sets of numbers and transpose them back onto a map of different scale some two to five days later with no error. Once he met someone, he could always call them by name on the next meeting. He was, without a doubt, a genius. I'll pick it up with some very provocative comments he makes, which were read in uh, segment one, but this is very short. Uh, This I can now say with all uh, certainty. Abraham Lincoln was murdered by the passive action of his own cabinet. There was money raised among northerners for the purpose, and the opportunity was established for Booth to do the job all the time thinking that he was undetected. By the time I had made my reports from Montreal, there was more evidence against J.W. Booth than was ever needed for conviction by a military commission. Many other men have been hung for much less during the Lincoln administration. When Lincoln was assassinated, Colonel Baker was in New York, but he quickly returned to Washington. I met him at the Willard Hotel, and Dooley was with me. The search for the assassin was completely confused, and everyone was trying for the reward. False information was being passed at every hand. Colonel Baker asked me to go with Dooley on the next boat down the river to Matthias Point and to wait at the river crossing, which was part of the express route to Richmond for Southern Maryland. All, right, now this, all this means is that he was on the, the, the uh, trail of what he thought was only one pair of fugitives, uh, spoken uh, as uh, John Wilkes Booth and David Harold. So we'll just skip the rest of it, uh, just to give you an idea that Bernard was involved in this chase. And he did believe that Booth was killed at Garrett's barn. I mean, he, he didn't stick around long afterwards, and I guess he felt there was no reason to believe otherwise. And I believe he also went to his death thinking it was Booth, not knowing what else had happened. Uh, it, I'll pick it up here. It says, I saw colonel who was then General Baker in Washington during the congressional hearings. He was pale and distraught. He talked with me for but a short time and then bid me a fun farewell forever. I believe the congressional hearings are talking about, uh, I think that's got to do with the Andrew Johnson impeachment and and perhaps more. But at any rate, uh, they didn't find anything out. What a surprise. Going back about uh, Baker being pale and distraught. I never saw him again. He told me that he was constantly being followed and that there had been many attempts on his life. He died on July 3rd, 1868, and I have always thought that he was murdered. I tried to visit him in June before his death, but I did not see him. His lovely wife met me in the the parlor, and we talked for a short while. She was pathetic to see. She was distraught with fright. I promised to return when the general was better, but such was never to be. Jane Baker, Baker's widow, widow, remarried in later years and became the mother of a fine son who later became a general in the Marine Corps. From the day that I talked with Mrs. Baker, I was followed no matter where I went. I don't know what they were after, but someone was anxious to see me dead. There were several several open attempts on my life. I suppose I knew too much of many things which had gone on. I realized that I had to take drastic action to avert being murdered. I was then engaged to marry Miss Kate Scott of Brookville, Pennsylvania, a grand lady known to me since childhood. I fully realized, however, that she was marrying me now for convenience than anything else since she had never forgotten her first love, Calvin Craig. Colonel Craig had been her lifelong friend, and they had been in the war together. Her is a nurse, and he is a captain of volunteers with the 105 Pennsylvania Militia. He had unexpectedly married someone else, but she never forgot him. He was later killed, leading his men in a glorious charge. I went to see Kate and managed with little difficulty to break the engagement during a purposeful quarrel. I also terminated my business and converted all my assets to cash. I caught the steamer to Cape May, New Jersey. I registered at a small hotel and spent several days lying in the sun. I left my room at night and took one small valise in which I had most of my money, some few clothes and a razor. I'm I'm reading this just because it is absolutely fascinating, and it's not much longer to this, but again, it just gives you a whole picture of what things were like then. I mean, for all the murders and the, uh, the suicides, all the suspicious deaths that we've seen racked up in the United States, especially through most of our lifetimes, at least in the last half century. Uh, it was going on back then. I mean, it, it might have even been more ruthless. But a lot easier to pull off because there wasn't all the surveillance and the technological techniques and the communications at all. So we'll finish this out. Uh, uh, these I secreted under a bayberry bush a short way up the beach. That would be the razor and clothes and such. I then returned to my room, and my presence had never been missed. The next morning being a Sunday, I went to church. I returned from the church and went immediately to the bush. I quickly disrobed and walked into the surf. There were many persons on the hotel por uh, persons, excuse me, on the hotel porches, as I knew there would be. The ladies began to scream and point. I plunged into the surf and began to swim. Whale boats were launched, but I was far enough out to be able to move up the beach without uh, them being able to see me. I had picked an incoming tide, and I was swept up, too, and easily swam into a small inlet, which was fed by a creek. I emerged out of sight of my would-be rescuers and proceeded to where my valise was hidden. I dressed and then moved further from the beach. I stopped only long enough to shave off my beard and mustache. I went straight into the Cape May Courthouse, which is the name of the town, and acquired lodging at a boarding house. Later in the day, I heard of the suicide of a man at Cape Island City. Robert Bernard was dead. I had assumed a new name and had left my past behind, for I was followed no more. I went west, made new investments and a fortune. I did not marry until 1914 after hearing of the death of Kate Scott, a woman I dearly loved. There was one thing that made me fake a suicide. I had seen the mortal fear in the eyes of Jane Baker. I did not want Kate to know that fear. Uh, This journal will never uh, be seen during my lifetime. If it will ever be of uh, interest after my death, I do not know, but there is much which will die with me, and that is for the best. And I'll tell you, time and again, you'll hear this. I know much, but it wouldn't do any good. Well, I wish somebody would have said something, because there are secrets that don't have to remain secrets, but of course... The uh, result of that would be, much to many people's chagrins, and especially old fart historians, that uh, the the way of American government is every bit as bad or worse than what Caesar uh, met with. Uh, one other comment about this, and we'll revisit it. Uh, amazing, amazing, again the coincidences, but the Kate Scott. That Bernard talks about wound up being deflowered by guess who, John Wilkes Booth, and she bore him a child. Can't make this stuff up. All right, now we'll move to another side of Baker. You know, this and this shows another side of him. Uh, If you remember from the first segment, uh, the letter that was written from uh, Barnes to Watson. Uh, about when is this kidnapping going to take place with Lincoln Uh, and the fact that uh, Barnes wrote that their friends in Liverpool were not happy about either the temporary suspension or the full termination of the uh, pork, sometimes called meat, meat for cotton deal. Uh, It was making money for people on both sides of the Atlantic. Lincoln had okayed it. And uh, upon his reelection, he decided, and this I think went along with this change of heart about the war and prosecuting it longer. Uh, He decided that the uh, pork for cotton deal was not going to happen anymore. And this left millions on the table uh, most likely to be lost unless the uh, contracts that have been promised uh, were actually delivered upon. So we have this, again, meat for cotton deal, and, and it involves uh, up in New York an employee of uh, the DeMille Company, a man by the name of R.D. Watson who was a recipient of a letter from uh, James D. Barnes that I read in segment one. Now, Lincoln has been assassinated. Uh, Baker is up in New York. Watson is now afraid because he had written a letter to John Surratt, who now is is a a fugitive. Uh, But Surratt, again, as we said earlier, was a courier and kind of a jack of all trades. Certainly a confederate at heart, but who was also known to Stanton. But at any rate, uh, Watson knows that that letter to Surratt somewhere out there. He's hoping that it's been disposed of, or but it wasn't. And guess who found it? The NDP. Now, Baker knew about the pork for cotton deal, uh, didn't get involved in it until... Now after Lincoln's assassination, and he's up in New York on other business, and he goes to see uh, uh, Watson. It says, Watson's letter or a copy was soon in Lafayette Baker's hands. Watson could hardly have been more on edge than he already was when someone knocked on his door at midnight. It was no federal lawman with an arrest warrant, but a caller conveying the same threat and intent upon relieving Watson of meat-for-cotton contracts. When the visit ended, Signatures were blotted on new agreements, and Watson quietly packed for home. What he had done was to sign over the majority of his investment to a firm that called itself the Henry J. Eager Company, which used the familiar Water Street address, and that would be Water Street in downtown uh, Manhattan. Two of its three partners, John McGinnis and Roswell E. Goodell, had held government meat contracts and were as opportunistic a pair of fortune hunters as it ever wheeled and dealed. Originally from Chicago, sons-in-law of a former Illinois governor whose career had succumbed to scandal, these two were perpetually alert for profit and employed the political services in Washington of Orville H. Browning and his fellow influence peddler, Ward H. Lambin. Good old Lambin, U.S. District Marshal, uh, that would be the District of Columbia, and uh, Lincoln's bodyguard, who had also uh, been asked to get in contact with Surratt. I mean, you can see, just absolutely, everybody's got hands in everybody's pies. All right. Uh, uh, Lavin, Browning, McGinnis, and Goodell, all four had numbered themselves among Abraham Lincoln's friends during his early years as lawyer uh, and state congressman. All four had repeatedly sought to strike a bonanza from that friendship while he was in the White House. His sudden death had not put the brake to their efforts, even though the covert trade deal from which they anticipated fat rewards had become interwoven with a plan to have Lincoln, in James V. Bourne's words, quote, deposed for a fortnight, if you, if you might remember, just to get them out of the way, so that with them absent, meaning them also sewered, uh Congress would sit in, in place of the uh, two chief executives now in absentia, and they would push through the contracts. That's the only thing they wanted was just those contracts pushed through. A kidnapping would do just fine, thank you. Uh, McGinnis and Goodell were two members of a three-man company hastily fabricated to seize the lion's share of Georgia cotton. Its senior partner, Henry J. Eager, was the inveterate schemer likely to have known every link between the Water Street clique and the bloodless kidnap plot aborted by murder. That third man was Lafayette C. Baker. Shouldering into control of a business enterprise, thrown into disarray by recent events, had been easy for this operator. While R.D. Watson was in one room of the Astor that night, Baker, as eager, was waiting in another. He had learned of the meat for cotton deal from his NDP agents in Nashville, New York, and Montreal. Until Lincoln's murder, no, uh, no opportunity had arisen for him to move in on it, but now he was on with Watson's letter to John Surratt, a hunted assassination suspect. Any connection with Lincoln's murder was the last thing Watson could want. The blackmail worked. John McGinnis, Watson's midnight visitor, brought word back to Baker that the transfer of 75% of Watson's interests in the cotton deal to the Henry G. Eager Company had been duly signed. Only then did Baker revert to his official role as War Department Special Agent and obey Stanton's summons to see if he could find the man who had killed President Lincoln. So uh, we'll move ahead a bit. And uh, this is about the time <clears throat> that uh, Johnson was up for impeachment. Now, some claim that Johnson was the one who instigated Booth into not kidnapping the president, but killing him. And we'll address that uh, from other authors. Um, You know, it's a possibility. (laughs) Sometimes I think it's hard to find anybody who didn't want him dead. But right now, I'm reading mostly out of Dark Union, and I just want to make a, a, a remark here, an aside, the reason I use Dark Union is, uh, you know, Neff was on this trail for a long time. Uh, that means, you know, of course, you could still write a bad book or have bad information, but I do not believe he did. And when I look through the notes for each chapter and see the sources, I, you know, I, I don't know how anyone can say, that he didn't have it down more than anyone else. And I'm going to try to get a hold of some of these. Uh, Some of them are available in books, like I said, on archive.org. But when it really comes to the nuts and bolts about what happened to Booth, who was James Boyd, uh, where did Booth go after the fact, to me the best information is from Neff and Guttridge. I just, that's it. Uh, So anyway, getting back to uh, Baker, uh, then Lafayette Baker swept back on the scene. He had been out of sight since his expulsion from government employ after the affray with President Johnson over his practice of stationing spies on the White House grounds. Well, this is because they were wondering about Johnson. Uh, His testimony, meaning Baker's, before the Judiciary Committee made some of his listeners jump when he had handed that diary over to Stan, <clears throat> this is supposedly, <clears throat> excuse me, Booth's diary. Well, <clears throat> this goes into two men on the run that night, both with diaries. It's reported that Booth had forgotten his, and that's another whole thing we'll get into when uh, we, we trace where he went after the uh, shooting of Lincoln. But what what is known is that the diary... As it is now, well, after the fact, it had something like 18 pages ripped out. Okay. Guess who it was handed to? Stanton. So this is what this whole refers to. It said, uh, when he had handed that diary over to Stanton, he said the book was intact with no pages gone. Colonel Conger, Baker's own handic- oh, handpicked a detective at Garrett's farm, was brought in to contradict his old chief by swearing that when the diary was taken off, quote, Booth, and there's a reason that name is in quotes, some pages were indeed missing. Now, I'm not going to get this thing any more confused, but just understand this. Booth's diary left days earlier than when Booth supposedly was shot at Garrett's barn, and that was not Booth, it was James Boyd. All right, the diary that is Booth's diary was already in D.C., it was already excised. What they got off Boyd was another diary. That could not have been Booth's because Booth's was already in D.C. So what Congress is talking about is, frankly, Boyd's diary with pages missing. Well, just for our purposes right now, who cares about Boyd's diary? Why Why pages excise? Although I will admit that one of the conspirators, Michael on whose death, death was faked, and who was released from the Dry Tortugas and assumed the name of Stevenson, said that he thought of all the diaries floating around that Boyd's would be more damning to Stanton and company than Booth's. So, you know, again, Conger, is he lying, knowing that it's Boyd's diary? And who knows if any pages were taken out of Boyd's diary because Boyd's diary has never been talked about. The the Diary that is always talked about had 18 pages, 17 pages, whatever, excised. So is Conger lying, because the the body he got, that he uh, took control of, was Boyd's. Luther Baker, the former chief detective's son, followed the same line, (laughs) swore to what Conger said, this is his son. Okay, Lafayette Baker was later recalled and given a chance to recant. His responses this time were less assured to the point of vagueness, but they did not amount to any clear departure from his early assertion that since he had last seen Booth's diary at the War Department in 1865, someone had sliced out dozens of its pages. Moving on, two nights before Christmas, 1867, someone stabbed Lafayette Baker as he stood outside his home at 1739 Coat Street, Philadelphia. The attacker fled. That same festive week, bullets flew at Baker's carriage as he took a ride. Early in 1868, he fought off an attempt to kidnap him. After being shot at again, he told the servant that they would get him yet. And when asked who they were, he replied, quote, my old friends. Old friends included, Lafayette Baker's enemies were legion. The main army consisted of potential vengeance seekers, hundreds jailed for disloyalty on Baker's command during the war. He had invited more trouble by a suicidal stand on the matter of the missing pages from Booth's diary. Also, he had lost heavily through disastrous investments of his own money uh, and of uh, uh, Jenny Baker's inherited wealth. His endeavors to recoup were perceived by his partners in the now-dormant Henry J. Eager Company as tactics of fraud. Early in the year, Baker was visited by Walter G. Pollock, a former NDP agent. There were other connections. Raised in childhood at R.D. Watson's home, that's the one that uh, was blackmailed by Baker, Now, remember that. Uh, Pollock had married Baker's sister-in-law. Pollock brought oysters and imported beer, and one January evening, he and the Bakers dined at a Ratzkeller in Germantown. Baker was sick the next morning, and his doctor diagnosed ptomaine poisoning. Walter Pollock called again, and again. And a comparison of medical reports with entries in Jenny Baker's private journals reveals that her husband's gastric upsets occurred whenever Pollock arrived with beer and oysters. By the onset of summer, Baker's physician suspected arsenic poisoning and prescribed an elixir. Thus precariously sustained, Baker had begun the task of framing in code and cipher his sensational intelligence. He feared that, quote, professionals, unquote, were out to get him and at times suspected everybody, including his wife, whose proximity to Pollock, whether known to Baker, kindled Jenny's lust. But her diary, frank in its disclosure of Pollock's amorous attraction, would give no cause to assume that cuckoldry had blossomed into a murder uh, pact. She seemed resigned to the death of her laugh, at least from the evening on which uh, reading the cards, was as was her habit, she drew the ace of spades. Baker would not, however, die a pauper. Briefly in early spring, Pollock stayed clear of him, Baker apparently thriving on his absence. He went to New York and called on Richard DeMille, Uh, That's the company that Watson belonged to and was involved in the meat for cotton deal. Uh, Details of the deal he uh, he, uh, cut would remain obscure, but the result for Baker was a windfall of about $400,000, money from cotton sales that was supposed to have been split five ways within the Henry G. Eager Company. Thus enriched, Baker returned to Coat Street. Shortly after that, so did Walter G. Pollock. With more oysters, and guess what? Imported beer. And when Jenny Baker, within 48 hours of Pollock's last visit, wrote in her diary, My love is dying. Poor dear. She was not referring to her sinister seducer. Now, you got to tell me. I mean, can we read between the lines here? All right. Baker obviously grew fond. I guess of a woman that you could say, I don't know. Was it tart? Is that too strong? I mean, just another example, and this is an early one, of what has never really stopped, and that is, uh, and I'm not saying that women do this deliberately, but it seems that if you spread your legs for people in high places, uh, you kind of get brought on their coattails to a certain station in life that you would not normally have uh, been able to uh, aspire to. And we're talking about Laura Duval, who came to Baker constantly, and who Je- uh, Jenny was not fond of. But you got to ask yourself, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Were these visits by Pollock, I mean, could, could, I mean, could Jenny Baker not put it together that every time Walter showed up, <laughs> right after he left, her husband got sick, and she could—they let everybody let this go on? I don't care. I mean, how many times can that happen before you go, you know, duh? So I'm not so sure that she was so squeaky clean. Uh, And yet it said that she, as you heard from Bearden's report, that when he went to see Baker, he couldn't get to see Baker. And she was miserable looking also as if she was afraid for her life. And that's exactly what Bernard thought was happening. But, you know, come on. And now she's banging Pollock. Now, is that because of Duval being there and Jenny not liking it? Or did Duval come into the picture because Baker knew that Jenny was going south on him? I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't know. But I, I just can't believe that Jenny Baker wasn't hip to what was going on. At any rate, yet Baker was not so easily disposed of. He hung on to June when his wife wrote, Loff is changing his will so that someone else will get his papers and personal possessions, that someone else being Laura Duval. A neighborhood friend and former NDP cipher clerk, who paid a visit at the end of the month, found him with a stack of books at his bedside. He was making marks in one, a cipher, but a different cipher than I had ever seen. Yes, this is a quote. Baker gave him one of the books to take home. It was an English military title. This, too, had cipher penned in it. The next day, Baker suffered a relapse. His physician, William M.L. Rickards, rushed to coast Street and found Baker suffering violent headaches, with an increasing paralysis, symptoms the doctor diagnosed as of meningitis. He relieved Baker's distress briefly by cupping and leeching along his patient's spine, but the leeches quickly died, and shortly after midnight, July 3rd, so did Baker in fits of tremendous shuddering. Many of the events during Lafayette Baker's final hours were recorded in court proceedings held October 14, 1872, to determine the legality of an unprobated codicil to his will. Complicant flair between rival claimants to the sudden fortune he had left. And uh, that's also, that transcript is also in that Civil War Times uh, magazine from August of uh, 18, sorry, 1961 about those events. And they were trying to prove Baker's uh, insolvent mental state, but his attending physician was honest to the bone. I mean, he was even cross-examined about the fact that you think that Baker was poisoned. He's like, well, no. He goes, well, could it be? Well, yeah, it could be. So he wasn't willing to go down that route, but he said that the attempts on Baker's life were not flights of fancy from Baker. They happened, and in cases they were documented by the police. So that was the story about Baker uh, and Pollock. Well, what about Pollock? Well, there wasn't an investigation into, uh, you're going to love this, have you heard this before, suspicious deaths in the wake of Lincoln's assassination. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this investigation led also to uh, Doyle's, Doylestown, Pennsylvania, remember that name, uh, home of this Walter Grant Pollock, whose mother was the president's second cousin. What do you know? And that would be President Grant. On March 21st, uh, 1876, Pollock admitted to his visitors that not only had he been present when Lafayette Baker died, but that he was on the premises at the deaths of both William A. Browning and Levi Turner. I don't have to, we'll go into this now, but I these are other principles in the meat, uh, for cotton deal and other skullduggery. Uh, Yet the circumstances in each case he pleaded were so painful a memory that he could not discuss them. Yes, he had studied pharmacy and had worked as a druggist before joining the National Detective Police. No, he was not a member of any conspiracy to poison anybody, and if they had any evidence that said otherwise, they had better turn it over to a grand jury. Uh, The detectives snapped back that they would, and when they accused him of feigning grief to avoid questions, Pollock drove them out. Finally, with Pollock... Little is known of his last years. Where and when he died are not known. He seems to have fit the character of a hitman. The detective Andrew Potter did not think that Baker's death had anything to do with Pollock's designs on Jenny Baker. Uh, This is a quote. Pollock never mixed business with pleasure. Had it been called for by his employers, Pollock would probably have given Jenny arsenic too. So Jenny supposedly goes off and gets married. You heard the Bernard report that uh, she... uh, uh, led a good life, and then uh, gave uh, birth to a son who became a marine later. Others have it that she and her husband by the name of Dietz out in San Francisco died in the San Francisco earthquake. Maybe it all happened. But uh, before this audio ends, I just got to add one more thing about where Walter Pollack showed up. Now, one of the eight conspirators that were convicted for complicity in the conspiracy to assassinate the president one of, the eight, one of the four that was imprisoned, the other four were hanged, was a Michael O'Loughlin, a lifetime friend of Booth. So he, well, I'll just pick it up here, okay? This is from the diary, and it isn't all that long. It's about 20 pages, uh, eight and a half by 11 type written by Lolly Eaton. And I think I've read from this before uh, with, with Stevenson, well, with Michael O'Loughlin's tape, take on who was behind the assassination of Lincoln. Michael O'Loughlin is considered to have been deceased from yellow fever in the Dry Tortuga prison in 1867. He, in fact, did not die in the Dry Tortuga prison. And this is why. Uh, <clears throat> says, the story of the arrest of Mrs. Surratt Dr. Mudd, Sam Arnold, myself, and others is well known. Our treatment is somewhat known, but no human being can ever realize the terrible inhumanities we suffered. I would not attempt to describe them, for they only bring back the terrible nightmares which have possessed me for many years. Dr. Mudd, Sam Arnold, Spangler, and I were transferred to Fort Jefferson of the Dry Tortugas for what was supposed to be the rest of our lives. This was not expected to be for very, very long, for a few lasted more than five years on that hellish island. I was placed at the cubicle, which was about two feet by two feet by five feet. This was made of bricks with stone floor and a wooden door and no window. It was completely dark uh, and during the day as hot as the hinges of hell. During the night, it was rather cool, but with the rising of the sun, it became an oven again. Once a week, I was taken out of this hole and taken to the sick bay where I was examined by the doctor or a hospital steward, allowed to eat one meal of meat, potato, and bread, and I was then taken back to my dungeon. This procedure took exactly one hour, and during this time no one spoke one word to me. I could talk, but no one answered. I was not allowed to wash or shave, but I was allowed to change clothes. Since I had no place to go, meaning to the bathroom, my clothes contained my excrement. The cubicle was too small for me to remove my clothes. I was fed once daily, I was given a piece of bread and a cup of water, about one pint. I do not know how long I was in this hellhole, but it seemed like ages. One day I was taken from the cubicle and to the sick bay, but when I got there, there was only one man there. He was well dressed and had on the table, uh, and on the table was a fine meal consisting of meat, cheese, and green vegetables, and beside it was a cup of coffee. I, I uh, would not believe my eyes and thought that I was irrational which I partly was, the man spoke uh, to me. He said, sit down and eat. I want to talk to you. The man was W.G. Pollock, and he asked me if I knew where Booth had hidden the gold which he had. He said that if I would help him get the gold, that he would see that I got out of prison. He said that he knew about Booth's wife, but that she was no help. They had been watching her, but she was of no help. They knew that she could find the gold, but as long as they watched her, she would not get it. I knew that if I helped him, I would probably not live to tell about it, but as dazed as I was, I realized that death would be better than staying where I was. Many things could be worse than death. I told him I could not uh, and indeed would not help him as long as I was in prison. If he would get me out, I would give my word that I would get the gold for 10% of it. He agreed and told me that he would return in about a week. In the meantime, I would be kept in a special room to myself and I would be reported as sick. From that time on, I was treated well, allowed to bathe and shave, and on the third day, I was given a sedative. I remember practically nothing beyond that point until I awoke in New Orleans sometime later, October 5, 1867. I was in a clean bed and had a nurse with me. I was very weak, and when given a mirror, I saw that I was as yellow as an oriental. I was told that it was a dye and that I had I had been reported as having died of yellow fever since the island uh, was having an epidemic of that disease at that time. A week later, on October 12, 1867, Pollock again visited me. I was feeling much better and was able to eat and was, and, and was gaining weight. I was outfitted with clothes and luggage and made to look like, the, like a proper gentleman. The following day, we left for Baltimore, arriving there on December 3rd. I had assumed the identity of John Henry Stevenson. Okay, that's where Michael O'Loughlin now becomes John Henry Stevenson, a name which I had used before my arrest to some small degree. I was covered by the, I was covered by the fact that Michael O'Loughlin was dead. I had my hair cut and my whiskers trimmed differently so that there would be no chance of uh, recognition by anyone in Baltimore. Pollock gave me the address of Isola Booth, Booth's first wife and perhaps only wife, and I took a room about three blocks away. Pollock had Isola under constant survey, and though I, too, was constantly watched. It was obvious that Pollock did not trust us. Three days after I moved into my room, I went to visit Isola. She was not in, so I left my card. I wrote on it that it was necessary to see her. I signed it J. Stevenson and left it with a lady who was there. I told her that I would, would return that night. I then returned to my room, stopping by a saloon long enough to buy a bottle of whiskey. When I got to my room, I made a big pretense of drinking myself to sleep. I poured about half of the contents of the bottle out and settled into my bed, taking care to snore like a drunken man. Within about half an hour, the door opened and Pollock and another man came into my room. They completely searched the room and took care to go through all my clothes and luggage. Then they left. After they had left, I arose, dressed, and stuffed blankets into my bed so that it would appear occupied, and left by way of the window. I went back to Isola's house and entered the second floor by means of an unlocked window. I came down the stairs and almost scared the colored woman to death. She was about to run a hairpin into me when I made her understand that I wanted to talk to Mrs. Booth. Uh, she said, "Then that sneaks around in this world like you does ain't no does ain't up to no good." Sorry, but it's not proper English, but you get the idea. This was Aunt Sarah Johnson, a real loyal and intelligent African who many times risked her life for Isola Booth, and her family. Her son was Booth's valet. His name is Henry. Uh, It says here, I believe that his name was James, whatever. I talked with Isola for several hours. She was amazed to learn that I was alive and out of prison. She pressed me for details of my escape and of plans for the future. I told her that I would like to help uh, her get the money from the farm in Virginia, and that then I planned to go to Europe to live. It was then that she told me that Booth was not dead. She said that after the assassination that Wilkes had come to the farm and had recuperated from the broken leg. He had then left with his Negro valet and another man, who we believe is Edward Henson, and made his way to Canada. From there she did not know where he went, but she had heard from him in September. He had planned to meet her in San Francisco in the spring. He wanted her to meet him there with with the money. We agreed to go to the farm and get it, and then I would accompany her to San Francisco. This would take me far away from Pollock and give me a new start. We agreed on a plan. I would call on Azola the following day and take her out to dine. We would make plans while Pollock's men overheard us. We would plan to go to New York while really planning to go to California. In our New York plans, we set aside the date of January 5th, but on the evening of December 23rd, it began to snow quite heavily. And so that night, at about 10 o'clock, I brought two excellent saddle horses into the alley at the rear of Isola's house. I had retired after dinner to my room with a bottle, an apparent habit I established for the benefit of Pollock's detectives, and he had reason to believe that I was drunk and settled for the night. At 10.30, Isola, who was dressed as a boy, and I on horseback, made our way out Frederick Road in a blinding snowstorm. We took with us just enough clothes to last us until we could get the money from the farm and catch the train west. We were both leaving our past behind us. I'll leave it right there, because there's more to come with this. But here you see that Booth was not killed at Garrett's Barn. He was alive. He did recuperate with Isola, and then he lit out to go to San Francisco. Some have it that he went into Canada and came back out. It doesn't matter. The fact is that Booth was not dead. Pollock, who we had introduced you to, uh, with uh, circumstances in and around Lafayette Baker's death, and that was up in Germantown, Pennsylvania, outside Philadelphia. At the same time, he's trying to keep tabs also on Michael O'Loughlin turned into John Stevenson uh, so that he doesn't get away or, or pull any shenanigans off with Isola and the money – uh, that belonged to Booth, the silver, the gold, and the paper. Remember this, this town, Doylestown, Pennsylvania? Uh, Pollock was interviewed, picking it up again from uh, John Stevenson's diary. He said, uh, it was just before Christmas in 1878 that I felt compelled to leave the East. I was at the time living with friends in, guess where? Doylestown, Pennsylvania. They have been most gracious to me since I had become afflicted with Dropsy in 1877. So he got him, meaning Stevenson, and Pollock living apparently in the same community. Now, I'm sure that Doylestown wasn't that thriving uh, metropolis back in the 1870s. Not that it is now. But still and all, could they have known of each other's whereabouts? Did they not know about uh, each other? You know, it's. It's crazy. I mean, there's not a straight line in this whole story. Not that, not that the uh, accounts that we're dealing with are not true, but, but look at this. I mean, it's almost too nuts to believe. And certainly if, you, if someone tried to even portray this in a fiction work, they'd be like, no, that's, that's a, I mean, come on, you're crazy. So uh, near the end of his life, you have Stevenson in Doylestown. Now, eventually he does leave and goes west. So all we know is that we don't know what happened to Pollock when he left Doylestown, if in fact he did leave Doylestown, but without records of his death and whereabouts, you got to wonder if he d- indeed did stay east. But then if he went west, he did the same thing that uh, Stevenson did. Uh, and I just want to read the uh, the end of this because Stevenson did not want this memoir to be published until after his death. And to me, that, that kind of like tends me to believe it's it's real. It's truthful because he didn't want to profit from it. He just wanted this to go down as the record. I can believe that. So anyway, uh Eaton was the one that transcribed his account. I, you know, I think this is so I'll just read the end of, of the the uh, journal. I, I don't want to give too much away, so I'll just say this. When uh, Isola, who had gone off with Booth from San Francisco... One of them coming back, and that's another whole story in itself. And we'll have we'll have Troy Cowan, who wrote the book Isola, to come on and speak to that. I mean, this woman was like a heroine that'll never be, it'd never even be known about, really. But no matter. It said, uh, "Before Isola went to San Francisco to meet him, meeting uh, Booth, she was warm and tender to me, and showed me passion as no other woman had ever done." Fill in the blanks. After she returned, she was dead inside. She had lost her entire spirit. She was only half a woman. For this I could never forgive him, meaning Booth. I know that there are many who, if they read this garbled missive, will say that I was a fraud. They will be right, but not because of what I write, but of what I did. The world would have been better off had I never been born, but born I was and die I shall, and judge shall we all be. I have many times atoned for the many sins that I have committed, and I know that I have been promised forgiveness. If being sorry helps, then I am assured relief. There is much that I could relate, but it would uh, do no good. Here again, just like in Bernard's memoir, I know stuff, but I'm not going to say it. It probably wouldn't do any good. Oh, man. Well, anyway, he did. Uh, he continues, I am not bitter and go to my reward willingly since my life had been, uh, has been difficulty, and I am so sorry. This was dated October 15, 1886. The footnote is, Mr. Stevenson died at 535 a.m. on June 23, 1890, at the farm of Mrs. Emma and Elmira Brandt in Muscatine County, Iowa. He had been ill for such a long time, and he longed so for death. He was buried in a small plot which, we had picked out Im- uh, which he had picked out himself. It overlooked the Mississippi River and gave a beautiful view. I have visited his grave almost daily since his passing, and a headstone has been erected. It reads, John Henry Stevenson, 1838-1890. And this is added at the end. His coming made the world a little richer. His being here made the world a little brighter. His passing made the world a little sadder. His memory lingers to give us comfort. And the, the name is Lolly Eaton. So there you have it. I mean, is this a town and a half or what? And I'm not just trying to pump this I mean, for no other reason, but I'm astounded by it. All this stuff going on with all these people. I mean, it is as if it were a fiction tale, like the Three Musketeers or you name it espionage, murders, assassination. Somebody knows somebody who knows somebody else who's related to this person. And we're not done. Thanks for listening and see you next time on Mystery History Theater.